Discussion, a Motorsports Analytics Podcast. I'm Alan Kavana of Fox Sports, joined by David Smith of Motorsports Analytics. On this episode, the return of the choose rule. What we like, what we don't, and what it means for all that restart data David loves to give you. A close look at the search for speed at Hendrick Motorsports, and of course, our big Dover preview. But first, as always, this is episode 75 of Positive Regression. This is the Neil Bonnet edition. David, great choice. A well-known name in NASCAR history for many reasons. He's got a long driving history, a member of the famed Alabama gang. I had fun researching this one, David, because I, I just didn't realize he had not one but two long stints for the Wood Brothers in the 21 car, and he also had two stints in the 75 car. So, David, with everything we can talk about with Neil Bonnet, where do you want, where do you want to start? Oh, this is going to veer into hero worship territory, oh, wow. I think. Uh, okay, so the 75 car and Neil Bonnet, that was Raymock Enterprises. And there were a number of good drivers that sat in that car. Harry Gant, Kyle Petty, Tim Richmond drove that car, Lake Speed, Morgan Shepard, Joe Rutman, Gary Ballou. But Neil Bonnet was the only race winner in the number 75 Raymock Enterprises car. They were, they were a middling team at best and Neil bounced around. As you said, he won 18 cup series races in his career. He also won four races in the international race of champions in 10 starts. He only actually uh, made five full seasons in the cup series, competed five full seasons. Alan, he was an interesting character. Neil kind of just viewed racing as something that was fun to do. He was from Bessemer, Alabama, which is also home to Bo Jackson. He worked a nine to five job as a pipe fitter and he'd work on top of tall buildings and sit and dangle his feet while having lunch. And he said he saw a lot of his colleagues die that way. That's why he got into stock car racing, because (laughs) it was a much safer line of work. Injuries took their toll on Neil Bonnet. We've talked about this uh, as it pertained to Dale Jarrett's career, but Neil suffered a head injury and amnesia at Darlington in 1990. Uh, he would not return to a race car until 1993. But during that time, he became a broadcaster and a good one at that. Hosted the show Winners on TNN, the old Nashville network, which was this amazing weekly show, kind of a, uh, a, a televisual magazine, if you will, featuring stories and interviews. And Neil was excellent. He was an engaging broadcaster. He was seemingly friends with everyone, kind of the Clint Boyer of his generation in that way. And uh, I personally think he should be considered for the Squire Hall Award uh, at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for his media excellence. Uh, he also was the first NASCAR race winner outside of North America. He won huh. at Australia in 1988. Uh, the Alabama gang, him and Bobby went one, two in that race. It was a kind of a shallow field. They schooled the competition and, uh, I will give a shout to one of my favorite books, uh, Peter Gollenbach's book, Miracle, the story of Bobby Allison and the Alabama gang. Of course, Neil, one of the the five members of the Alabama gang, I think the story of the gang ends in tragedy seemingly everywhere, and it it did here with Neil. He was killed in a practice accident 
at Daytona in 1994. But that's not how Neil's career or the Alabama gang should be defined because the gang was this group of friends in the Bessemer Huey town uh, area of, of Alabama, this group of good friends that really cared for one another and won a hell of a lot of races at the short track level and made their way all the way up to the cup series. That's sort of unfathomable when you consider that, but their successes were many and it was a good time. The majority of the time and Gullenbach's book gets this right. The story of the Alabama gang, I think was mostly good. The ending was not, but the story was good. And that holds true uh, for the gang itself and individually for Mr. Neil Bonnet. Good stuff. And uh, I, I pre- always appreciate your perspective on it because uh, I remember, obviously, look, being in the age that I am, and you're even younger, that you know, I obviously remember Neil Bonnet more as the, the broadcaster or the, the later in the career starts for uh, Neil Bonnet. And, and that's how I came to know of him. Uh, I swear, I couldn't confirm this in doing some research, but I swear if my memory in 1993 was correct, he joined the last race in 1993 in Atlanta as what I feel was a field filler just in case he had to dump out of it real quick because he was racing for Richard Childress Racing in this 31 car that that if if Dale needed it I swear he was going to Neil was going to pull right to the uh right to the garage if he needed it for the championship which he ultimately won anyway Dale did but uh so I was always a little bitter about that but I couldn't confirm that but I think it did happen David so uh I think that was his last official race as well in 1993 uh we we know how his life unfortunately ended but uh a, a lot of good a lot of good in terms of stories and influence David, there is a debate. I love how you you brought up the Squire Hall Award, but in terms of the NASCAR Hall of Fame as a driver, there is debate. He is on the short list. What do you think about him being a NASCAR Hall of Fame member? I think eventually he'll get there. Uh, I don't know. There there are probably more deserving drivers to get in next. There are certainly crew chiefs that need to be highlighted. Um, he, I mean, 18 wins, you don't, you don't fall backwards into that. Uh, certainly considering the kind of career he had, uh, the injuries came at the tail end of his career. Uh, I mean, even in looking this up, he had 83 top five finishes, nearly 10% of them came at the age of 39. So he had, he had gone through his prime. I think we were just kind of missing the, the twilight. Uh, we, we didn't see that, unfortunately, but, 18 wins, uh, I believe that is on par with Casey Kane. So I think maybe that is a, is, is kind of a good line. If you think Casey Kane's a Hall of Famer, then so is Neil Bonnet. And if you don't for one, then you probably don't the other. All right. Neil Bonnet, he is episode number 75 of Positive Regression, the Neil Bonnet edition. Let's get started. David, all three series head to Dover this weekend. The Cup guys have a doubleheader this weekend uh, with the last, I think, scheduled doubleheader on the schedule. But Truck, Xfin, and the Cup Series all up in Dover. And it means a return of the Choose Rule. The, uh, so you know, call it a cone or whatever, but it's a Choose V out there on the track. We saw it one time in practice. Uh, well, I guess we can count Bristol or whatever, but all three series ran it in Michigan. And David, I will say, uh, you know, growing to short tracks, growing up in the Northeast, 
if I missed it, maybe, but I don't think we had it up in, in Connecticut at Stafford, at Waterford, or Thompson, Riverside, all those little tracks we used to go to. Certainly in quarter midgets, we didn't have the choose rule. So what I'm saying is I had never seen it in person, in action, until I saw it at Michigan a few weeks ago. And I, I got to say, maybe as a race fan or a storyteller, David, I, I loved it. I loved seeing the strategy behind it. I loved what it did for for some people who wanted that that choice who thought it could give him an advantage the trucks for example uh john hunter nemechek was racing that one you know he's not ra- running for points or anything he has absolutely nothing to lose if he finishes second or 32nd right so he found multiple times an opportunity to move up a bunch of positions by taking the inside lane and sometimes it worked out for him so little things like that i really enjoyed uh, the concept of the choose rule because I, I just think it brought new players into the game. It brought people with confidence who think they can succeed from the inferior lane, if you will. And uh, I just like that from a storytelling perspective. I really loved it, David. I like that you had never seen it put to use until you got onto that golf cart in <laughs> Michigan. You introduced it to a lot of people. I don't think you realize that, but uh, I, I had, uh, prior to its use at Bristol for the All-Star Race, I had only seen it used in person at the Legend Car Tracks. So it, it's, it, it, there, there is some element of that we are taking something from NASCAR's equivalent of T-ball and bringing it into the big <laughs> leagues. But let's, let's think about this. The restarts were unfair as they were. The, the double file restarts inside and outside grooves were statistically imbalanced. They still are. And we, we've talked about that in the past. We're going to talk about it moving forward. Kudos to you, by the way, because look, look, there was obvious, uh, you know, the eye test, obviously, and the drivers bitching at times about which, which lane was bad or which was good. But if there's no David Smith, I think there's, a, a, a big piece of the conversation missing in terms of the percentages of just how bad some of these tracks were in terms of disparity. So David, I am patting you on the back from afar because I really do think some of these numbers drivers were citing to NASCAR. This is just my theory, but without your numbers and your data and your studying and you're breaking it down, your analysis, I don't think uh, it's as big of a problem without it. So kudos to you. Denny Hamlin squarely mentioned my name. I found out about it. I was in line at the grocery store and I flipped on Twitter and there were a lot of mentions. My, my initial thought was fear. <laughs> so, oh, oh, oh no. What, what, what have, what have I done now? Uh, but no, that, that is, that is very cool. Uh, and for NASCAR to address this, uh, let's talk, let's talk about that. Let's talk about how they chose to, uh, address it. I think the most logical thing NASCAR could have done, uh, to look at this imbalance and the competitive disadvantage was to revert back to single file restarts. I think that would have been the easiest thing. That would have been the boring answer, but correct in fairness to the sport. The choose rule is a creative way to avoid the obvious answer and also maintain a high point of action that fans seem to really like. They enjoy passing opportunities. They enjoy parody. I found the timing a bit odd 
a, a doubleheader during the regular season. This feels like it should have been introduced with a new car or for 2021. I don't know, but it's here and it is better than what came before. So I think we've got some learning to do. Yeah, and at least they did it they, they before the playoffs, so right, and so there, there's plenty of time to really get some because they did it. It took it took some evolution. They made a change from the track uh, from the truck race to the next day, from Friday to Saturday, um, you know, be, by moving where the choose V was. So there are some evolutions that have to go through here, some trial and error. So I'm glad if NASCAR was going to do it, they they made it and they they started it early, especially with with the playoffs coming up. Uh, David, we discussed it right after, and I, I heard from, you know, some people in NASCAR who didn't like the choose rule. And I, I didn't understand why exactly. None, no, no drivers, by the way, but some others, uh, some spotters I heard from and some others, they, they didn't love the idea of the choose rule mainly because a lot of the reasons I said in terms that it gave people who shouldn't maybe have a shot of winning, right. Or, or who don't have the fastest car or vehicle. Uh, it was suddenly putting them up front into spaces that they artificially gained, if you will, by choosing or having this opportunity to choose the rules uh, or choose their starting position. And some people didn't like that. I guess they didn't like uh, the impurity of it, I guess you could say, right. <laughs> that these were positions not necessarily earned on the track. Uh, or through skill or speed or what have you, and that it was kind of an odd way to uh, just deliver these opportunities to people who may have been running in back. Uh, I can tell you, I mean, Zane Smith, he won that awesome truck race, but with just a few restarts to go, he was in the teens and then used the choose rule to move up a little bit and then moves the choose rule again to be fifth on the inside line on that final restart and then goes out and takes it and gets the victory. Uh, I thought that was exciting. Some people think differently, David. Do you, do you think people or do you think that sentiment will, will grow on people? Will, will NASCAR regret this choice? Uh, well, well, hmm. Will NASCAR regret this choice? Uh, see, I think, I believe that will diminish the parody. Uh, it, it will diminish some element of surprise. Cole Custer's win at Kentucky probably would not have happened in the choose rule era. Now, the sport does not need parody, but the entertainment aspect will certainly be affected. And I think that's why you might hear some NASCAR officials grumbling about it. They're, they're in the entertainment business, but we saw this at Michigan with Kevin Harvick winning both races in dominant fashion. I would say he is a good restarter. He is a smart restarter. And I would argue he not only avoided low percentage restart spots, he also put himself in positions where he felt the most comfortable. And as we've discussed, a comfortable driver is most often a very good driver. And again, from a sporting element, a driver of his stature should dominate and should be allowed to maintain the good positioning he and his team earn for themselves, or at least have a, a say in the matter of where he restarts. But yeah, I, I think NASCAR and some factions of the fan base, maybe, maybe the neutrals are going to find that they've missed the unexpected of the pre-choose rule era when previously we saw dominant cars relegated to a non-preferred groove and essentially taken out of contention because of it. Yeah, but I, I could see 
I guess what you were getting, starting at the beginning is that they both situations would be somewhat artificial, wouldn't they then? I mean, for all the griping you could say about a driver now getting to choose his or her lane, uh, not getting to choose and just being up to, you know, their fate left up to the, how they come off pit road or who doesn't come down pit road and where they come out. Uh, that, that's just as crazy to some, I would think, wouldn't it be? Uh, maybe. Okay. So I, I know that we've made comparisons to basketball on past episodes. So I'll, I'll do another one here. When you hear announcers in a basketball game say that a player took a high percentage shot, that's great. They still have to make the shot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, they have to have the proper shooting form, elbows bent, follow through everything. The ball doesn't simply go in because it is a high percentage shot. The same goes here. The drivers still need to execute on the restart. Yeah, Zane Smith was fortunate because of the mistakes of others. He also had a pretty awesome restart, and that's the kind of thing that happens. So you can you can say that he was an early beneficiary of the rule. He still executed. He, he still had to make that happen. And I think when we look at how we evaluate drivers restarting going forward. In a sense, I don't know that the measurement changes much. I think that there is just more added to it because the groove disparities are still there. There will still be a preferred groove and a non-preferred groove. We will still end the episode of positive regression talking about which groove is best Allowing drivers to determine where they restart does not improve their ability to restart. Hmm. Preferred groove retention and non-preferred groove retention should hold steady. But what will change is the number of attempts, especially if you're one of the front runners. That could skew preferred, especially if you're, you know, in a position where you can just take that spot. And that's it. Eventually... I believe measuring the decision, and I haven't done it yet, it's going to take some time, but measuring the improvement in retention odds for each driver is the best way to go about doing this. But that is completely different than quantifying the execution of the restart, which is still of utmost importance in modern day NASCAR. You still have to have the ability to restart from both crews and be able to either gain a spot or mitigate a loss. And that's why I like it because if we want to talk basketball again, Steph Curry, you know, best one of the, let's just call him the best three point shooter in the game right now, right? Not everyone can hit the three pointer. He can. He has the confidence to pull up from 35 feet, 40 feet, 45 feet, whatever, because he thinks he has that ability. Compare that to NASCAR. I like the idea of a driver thinking they have the confidence knowing they have the ability to to be more if they are one of the better restarters knowing they have that ability to take that chance and say i'm going to put myself in the non-preferred lane because i can damn it right and i can hit the shot and i i just like that because it, it does offer to me a, a different storyline because someone will gladly take that non-preferred i think it's a confidence and I, I just love seeing that out of a driver someone who could put it on their shoulders and say hey i'm going to take this somewhat disadvantage maybe gain three four lanes on the inside uh in track position and you know either a few things can happen i can be super skillful and it pays off 
all it takes is one person right on the outside to screw up and you can kind of move up and, and you know, if someone else screws up, you could take advantage of their screw up or, or, you, or it's for a loss, right? That's the risk you take. But in some of these races, I think it puts new players and, and it puts the, they can take the pressure and put it on them. If they're assigned a bad spot, a few rows back, there's nothing they can do with that. But now all of a sudden they have the choice to say, I'm good. I'm confident. I can do this. Let's give it a try. I really like that. You are here for the irrational confidence. The, sure. We're, we're, Why, what's <laughs> an irrational though? I mean, all I have to do is look at David Smith's stats and say, look at, I'm, uh, whoever, Joey, I'm Ryan Blaney. I'm one of the best young restarters in the damn series. Why wouldn't I go do this? David Smith says I can do it. Oh, that, that could, that could foster some very interesting conversations. <laughs> About like, meh, or, 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 are we sure he wants to be restarting from there? I don't know. Kurt Bush, yes. You, no, I don't think so. Yeah. Yeah. That could, I can see that creating some conversations, but I hear you. I, I appreciate that as well. Uh, I, again, the, the obvious answer was to go single file. The, the toothpaste is out of the tube. That's net, that's never going to happen again. So this seems to be the next best thing. It is, uh, it's the new way of living. So I guess we gotta le- learn to love it if we don't already. Yeah. Again, small sample size on my part. If I change, David, I will come back and tell you. I promise. Okay. Okay. That's fine. <laughs> All right. Moving on as we look, uh, toward Dover and the choose rule. But David, it's a good time to, uh, look again at the status of Hendrick Motorsports because uh, Chase Elliott coming off the win, a lot of speed that we told you about they would have, obviously, on a road course. He goes out and dominates, no surprise. Alex Bowman solidly in the playoffs with his win. Um, we could talk about him. But, David, I'm looking at the other 200 cars, William Byron and Jimmy Johnson. One is in, the other is uh, out right now, and they are competing against each other, at least based on points, for that final playoff spot. Uh, so, and we're going to Dover where Jimmy Johnson is a legend. And so it would seem like to me, you know, the final stand for Jimmy Johnson, if it's going to make the playoffs, it's going to come this weekend, whether it be a win or two really good finishes, but we've looked at their speed early. Let's look at it again, David, where does Hendrick Motorsports stand in terms of raw speed on the charts? What should we look at? Well, let's look at this in two ways. Let's look at overall speed for the season and let's look at uh, the recent run of form. I've got the, the last eight races here uh for the season chase elliott's number nine car is the second fastest in the cup series this year alex bowman's car ranks ninth william byron's ranks 11th jimmy johnson's ranks 13th uh not bad not great if you're a long-term hendrick fan not certainly not what you're used to but chase elliott is up there uh but here's where it's going to get a little more concerning. Uh, the last eight races, Chase Elliott had the fastest car on the Daytona road course, but he's had the seventh fastest car across the last eight races. Jimmy Johnson's car ranks 12th. William Byron's ranks 14th. And Alex Bowman, which I mentioned was the ninth fastest overall in the series, ranks 17th Ooh. across this recent run of races. So, uh, we want to talk about those two bubble boys. They're within playoff range, just in terms of speed. Uh, I mean, they're, they're cutting it close. Uh, what, why, what are your thoughts? So when, when you watch Hendrick Motorsports every weekend, especially recently, 
What's going through your mind? Uh, disparity. I mean, there, there's still a part of me that, that looks at them. I cannot separate the head and the heart, David. That's what you do so well with your, 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 anal- your analysis of statistics, because I still think of Hendrick at so many times as the Yankees, right? As Jimmy Johnson dominating, as Jeff Gordon still there, Mark Martin, you know, th- that murderer's row of just an organization. And if I just took that name away and looked just at the stats, it's like, you know, what am I thinking still assuming that every week that they're, they're going to go out and run top five and lead all these laps? Uh, it seems at times very similar to what Stuart Haas Racing is doing in terms of there's a Kevin Harvick, you know, a la Chase Elliott, and then there's three other cars at times, right, that, that might compete, that could sneak out a win, but there's, you know, they go down different tiers as you go down to the third and fourth car. And I still have trouble thinking of Hendrick like that, but uh, the numbers do not lie when you look at them. And you just talked about their speed uh, in terms of where they should be. And in terms of where they are in the points, they're actually, they rank lower than where their speed is right now, right? So there's an issue with execution. I know in terms of points, Jimmy Johnson missed the race, missed the Brickyard. That certainly hurt, but there are some execution issues with uh, at least, what, three quarters, if not a half of, of the Hendrick teams. Okay, you brought up a good point with points. So I want to look at average finish, but let's let's make a comparison here. Let let's break different organizations into tiers. If the top tier of the Cup Series, if we can agree that that is JGR, Stuart Haas, and Penske, I think Hendrick might be the second tier by themselves and ahead of RCR and Ganassi. But this is kind of where it it gets interesting, and this is where your point comes into play. If that is the case, RCR and Ganassi, specifically with Kurt Busch, they are outperforming their tier, and Hendrick is underperforming. Hmm. So Austin Dillon has a better finishing average than William Byron. Tyler Reddick has a better finishing average than Alex Bowman. And, hmm. and, and going back to Kurt Busch, Kurt Busch has the fourth best finishing average in the series, despite having the 12th fastest car. Wow. And to a similar effect, Jimmy Johnson with a 13th fastest car has the ninth best finishing average. I kind of think that's the difference. Hendrick would benefit from having a good veteran driver, arguably the RDR with Jimmy, it's just not great. But, you know, that veteran driver who understands how to finish beyond his speed potential. I don't know whether Kurt Busch is actually making Chip Ganassi racing better and, and an organization that will uh, carry on sustained success after his exit. I don't know that, but he is making the team appear better. And Hendrick lacks that kind of driver. Maybe Chase Elliott is that driver, but Hendrick lacks the driver who enhances their appearance. It would have made a lot of sense for Hendrick to sign Brad Keselowski, at least from the outside looking in. He would have lifted that program up with performance. He potentially could have brought them into the next competitive tier. He did that with Penske uh, about a decade ago. But since Hendrick isn't willing to splash cash, they're not willing to spend beyond $2 million for a driver, 
they aren't going to get this kind of veteran. They are not going to spend in order to be great. They are going to build in order to be great. And I think what we're seeing from them right now every weekend is an organization attempting to build. The problem with that is that is slow burn. That is going to take a lot of time. Uh, you, I mean, they didn't get Brad Kozlowski. They still have decisions to make. I mean, is there anything, uh, there's still a season for them to run, right? So we can't, uh, put too much, two and two together too much in terms of what we should look for in 2021. I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but, uh, we, we know the decisions they haven't made, right? In terms of who to sign, uh, w- what decisions do you think they can make in the future to make that burn a little faster, if you will? Ooh. You know, this is not, the Hendrick Motorsports that Jeff Gordon built. It isn't the house containing two different dynasties. This is seemingly a different Hendrick Motorsports. It's certainly a more sensible Hendrick Motorsports. When you consider a decade ago, they had that murderer's row that you mentioned, four drivers earning a substantial amount of money. They had a big money free agent signing in Casey Kane that I would argue failed in fulfilling expectations. And really, in theory, he should be the veteran carrying the program and competing for championships right now. Last year, he would have been 39. He he would have been 40 this year. They had massive sponsorship loss over the last 10 years. They have very few sponsors now. The sponsors we see on the 88 car are pretty much all product or business-to-business partners. Ally Financial is a business-to-business partner, and that's on the car of a seven-time champion. So there's not significant revenue coming into the program, and they can't spend significant money. They can't spend that, you know, more than two million on a marquee driver because, frankly, they don't have it, which means... What we've identified is is necessary for a quick turnaround. I don't think is in the cards. They 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 could end up getting an Eric Jones. They could end up going in a different direction. But it's probably going to be a young, affordable driver, and the the plan continues. I, I think maybe what you said you hit the nail on the head. Stuart Haas could be the model. It, it is. Kevin Harvick and the Harvickettes at times. <laughs> I don't know. Is that the way to put it? But that's kind of it. You you do have uh, a potential all-time talent in Chase Elliott. It's early, but I think he's heading in that direction. You have that. Maybe that's how you grow the program going forward, given all the instability elsewhere in terms of sponsorship uh, and in the wider world, the economy that they're going to have to wait out and see what happens on the other end. We'll see what happens as we move on to uh, Dover. Only three races left. Time is ticking. Speaking of Dover, let's preview it because that's what we do here on Positive Regression every week. Uh, David Cup Cars going there. We'll preview that, uh, the package in terms of what they're racing. Something similar to 2018, not last year. They're going there with a, a small spoiler, 750 horsepower package. Um, so when you look at that stuff, David, I think, you know, this season they've had the different races at the 550 or the 750, the big spoiler, the small spoiler. Uh, you break it all down with your analysis and your data and everything. So, what matters and what doesn't with this reduced spoiler? Uh, that, that's something you wanted to focus on this weekend because there's two races at Dover. So what, what do you think matters? 
Uh, let's see what matters. What matters qualifying would matter, but that's not <laughs> on the docket. So, so, so starting spot, we'll say that's initial track position, always important. Um, but restarts and now passing matters. We can talk restarts first because as we mentioned, the choose rule is back. Restart disparity under the old package saw the outside groove retain 91% of the time. The outside spots on the first two rows did not lose position at all during last year's playoff race, and the inside groove retained only 31% of the time. So a pretty large difference. Yeah, Uh, that's bigger than Michigan was. So, I mean, in terms of strategy, we may very well see that that second-place car, you know, go in – go to the rear of the first place car, if you will, and line up essentially fourth or whatever. You know what I mean? We may, we may see that a lot more visually and get that story than we did probably in Michigan is what you're saying. If they're smart. Yes. If I was the second place car, I would choose P4 every time. Just based on what we know from last season's numbers. Now the, the spoiler could change a little bit of that, but we haven't seen that too often with this package, but keep your eyes peeled for that. Passing though, that has changed at the other 750 horsepower stops. It's a bit more open. Uh, we've mentioned before, good passers have been rewarded at the most recent 750 race, not counting the road course. New Hampshire, Denny Hamlin was the race's most efficient passer. He did not win, but he did finish second and race winner Brad Keselowski also turned in a positive passing performance. It seems as if that should be the norm uh, for for some of our listeners. It should go without saying that a race winner had a day <laughs> of efficient passing with a positive surplus, but it isn't always the case. Uh, even this year, Kevin Harvick's wins at Pocono and Indianapolis saw negative surplus passing. Denny Hamlin had a negative surplus in his win at Homestead. That is what happens when you strategize your way to track position. You can't get around them. Strategize a way to get around them. I don't see that as the case this weekend, though. If you are not able to pass, I don't know how you're going to contend. It will be a very long day for you. Track position based on the pit call itself. That should matter, Alan, but because of how difficult it is to get onto Dover's pit road at speed, do not expect much short pitting. Uh, years ago, Dave Rogers explained this to me. He told me that he only short pits at Dover if they are light on fuel. Crew chiefs do not want to risk wrecking a race car. So keep watch of that. Pit stops under green. A crash at pit entrance is a more elevated risk than usual. So I doubt we're going to see too many green flag pit cycle hijinks. Uh, Nothing creative in that regard. But uh, certainly if it comes down to the end of a race, we could see uh, teams making some calls on tires that could boost them up the front. <laughs> you mentioned passing. You mentioned, uh, what, good pit decisions. So uh, smart thinkers on top of the box. Uh, all in all, w- which drivers are set up to, to dominate Dover then? If uh, if, you want, if you're looking for a good passer on the 750 horsepower package, who are you looking at to dominate Dover? Two races, remember. Yeah, and I got two names. Uh, so Harvick and Hamlin will again be difficult to beat. I think that 
we should just say that up front until proven otherwise the show begins and ends with those two but beyond that are we ready to talk about martin truex's bizarre run of third place finishes right now i, I think we are we called it basically remember we, we, we had a whole episode about who's number three and um oddly ever since we named martin truex jr number three i think he's had five third place finishes in a row is that it four or five i mean it's it's, it's kind of crazy <laughs> We will claim that, yes. Uh, Truex ranks third in surplus passing value on 750 horsepower tracks. His speed is good. Third fastest across the last eight races. But we need to talk about the car that is the fastest across the last eight, and that is Kyle Busch. Hello. He also <laughs> ranks high in surplus passing first on the 750 horsepower tracks. I'll be honest, Alan, I don't know. I, I don't know how I feel about his prospect of winning this weekend. On paper, he should be the outright favorite. It's all there. The stars kind of align, but I, these, these races don't happen on paper. And Kyle Busch was the guy that I just saw drive, I don't know, three very slow miles on two tires towards the end of last weekend's race in Daytona. I'm going to guess he's maybe not in the most confident headspace right now. <laughs> KSB, but, man, he got it back to the pits. That's what you need. He, he, God, he did get it back to the pits, but I'm the team speed is in its best form of the season and Bush's peripheral numbers suggest that this should be a great two races for him. And frankly, he needs it going into the playoffs. It'd be a confidence boost for whatever that is worth. So at the very least, the ceiling for his result this weekend is very, very high. All right. He has no, despite not having the win, obviously he wants to be better. He's got no issue when it comes to the playoff. We already talked about some of the bubble drivers, those team Hendrick drivers, William Byron, Jimmy Johnson, who else is down there? How do you think these bubble drivers fare at Dover? I mean, it's easy to think Jimmy Johnson, Dover, this has to be a good week for him, right? But when we're talking about the 750 package, Eric Jones, not locked in the playoffs yet, obviously. He's been, he's had great passing numbers with this, uh, on this package so far this year. So what do you think this means for some of the, the bubble drivers, two races at Dover? Yeah, you mentioned Jones, uh, Tyler Reddick, Christopher Bell. Mm hmm. I think they can contend for good finishes. A win might be tough. That would require the race breaking in a specific manner. Uh, the best shot of those three, I think, is Tyler Reddick, just based on his passing numbers overall, based on the fact that this is a banked track with a high closing rate that changes with tire wear and that kind of thing suits him. I'm confident that if the race has a late caution, he won't pit or won't take tires. And with just a pair of races in the books with the choose rule, Alan, it's Tyler Reddick who scored the biggest net positional gain from choose time to two laps after the restart in those two races at Michigan. Small sample size, I know but maybe a cherry on top of everything else. I don't know. I feel like I'm a little bit more rosy on the guys outside of the playoff picture for uh, for this weekend. It is two races, so they can seemingly make up a lot of ground in one weekend. Yeah, uh, two two good chances for success or failure. Let's not forget just the, the bigger picture. I mean, I don't think talking with uh, the guys in the garage and just people smarter than myself, uh, in terms of the da – not damage, but the, the load that, that uh, is put on a race car and just the, the shift and the, the beating a race car can take, I don't think any track does more of that than Dover. 
So uh, doing that twice in one weekend with the same car will be significant. So that that may uh, shine a light on the bigger teams who have you know just the bigger resources and the longer histories. You got to think about that. Uh, the heat that we saw last week is going to be, I would think, an issue again. Uh, I just heard from uh, some friends in the garage that they may be making some window changes to allow a little cooler temperatures inside the car. Uh, because if you remember, the, the window is sealed on the right side. So you cannot, uh, that, that produces higher temperatures. So I hear NASCAR is making a change on that uh, from some of the people in the garage. So just some things to think about uh, when you think about the field as a whole, David, looking into the weekend, especially two races at Dover. But uh, as we always do, uh, we had Jamie McMurray last week who made a great contrarian contender pick. Michael McDowell finishing in top 10 at the Daytona Road Course. So, David, it's back to uh, us experts, right? Who are our contrarian contenders for the two races at Dover? I'll let you go first. Uh, I will pick a name that I have not mentioned in this segment ever, and that is Daniel Suarez. What? Okay. Uh Yeah. I've listened to Daniel Suarez and Gunt Brothers racing on the radio over the the scanner. Perhaps I'm jumping to conclusions here, Alan, but when I listen to them, it makes me believe that things aren't going great <laughs> and and everybody hates one another. A disaster, you might say. And the stats kind of back that up. They rank 31st in central speed. But Daniel Suarez's last four Dover races, he finished 3rd, 10th, 11th, and 14th. Those were with elite teams. We'll call them those. He finished 18th for GBR earlier this year at Bristol, another high-banked 750-horsepower track. The caveat, though, was that race contained... An extraordinarily high amount of cautions, which allowed the 96 car to finish on the lead lap, 500 out of 500 laps completed. And I don't feel great about that part being replicated at Dover. However, I do think it's possible that Daniel Suarez secures his fourth top 20 finish of the 2020 season this weekend. So far out there, but I suspect what would be a relatively good day to occur for the 96 team. All right, good. As long as you put it in perspective, that would be a great run. So we'll see what he can do. David, I didn't know uh, I was trying to, you know, extrapolate uh, all the numbers and, and come up with something smart. I didn't know if I should pick one of the best passers on 750 mile uh, horsepower, 750 horsepower tracks, not 750 miles. That'd be a long day. Uh, should I pick one of the best passers on, on that uh, package type? Or do I pick one of the best surplus passers on mile to mile and a half tracks this year? David, I believe I went with the better passer. I'm going with Christopher Bell to have a great weekend, if not a uh, top 10, maybe even further at Dover. Uh, it was between him and Tyler Reddick. And my deal breaker, or my tiebreaker was, I think Christopher Bell won last year at Dover in an Xfinity car. So between those two, I'm picking Christopher Bell this weekend as my contrarian contender. I think that's becoming a safe pick uh, nowadays. Bell kind of coming into his own after the rocky start to the season, but I like where it's headed. Uh, the passing numbers are there. The restarts have fluctuated, but long-run passing Chris Bell at Dover, not a bad choice. Excellent. We'll see what we can do. Keep this train going. Another good episode, the doubleheader in Dover. 
Good stuff. David, don't forget, we are available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, and Luminary. We're available no matter your device. Our entire catalog of episodes is available for free at posregpod.com. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating or a review. We heard some great stuff about last week's episode. Let us know. This helps in spreading the word. Tell your friends. Tell everybody. If you have any questions, we'd love to answer them. Send those questions to us on Twitter at posregpod, P-O-S-R-E-G-P-O-D. David, you're always working hard. What do you got this week? This week on Motorsports Analytics, I'm on the IndyCar beat, baby. Indianapolis 500. Looking into some comments made by 2019 race winner Simon Paginaw. Ellen, we're all familiar with drafting, but Paginaw said that he learned how to break a draft, how to disrupt another car from drafting off of him. By watching cycling, and Ooh. that piqued my interest. Yes, it did. Uh, he, he says that's how he won last year's Indy 500. Uh, so I looked into it. I analyzed the numbers behind it, looked at video. It was a thinking man's drive last year for Mr. Pashinaw. So before you watch a weekend's worth of racing, including the Indy 500, you might want to check that out on motorsportsanalytics.com. Very cool. Uh, putting your two nerdy loves together. So that's really, I, I can't wait to read that because it's, it's going to be a lot of passion behind it. So I'll check that out. Uh, I will head to Dover, uh, late Thursday and be there for the race on, uh, Late or early evening. I, lo- I always love the Dover race because it's about five o'clock. Uh, coverage starts at four thirty on Friday uh, on FS1 for the Dover truck race. So I'll be on pit road for that. Always exciting. Uh, good show over on the trucks. And uh, what else I got? Uh, just make sure you watch uh, Race Hub every weeknight, Monday through Thursday, six p.m. on FS1. And uh, thank you guys for listening. Uh, for David Smith, I'm Alan Kavana. This has been episode seventy-five of Positive Regression, a cool milestone. We'll keep it rolling. We'll see you next week. Rose Davis, historian and co-host of the sports podcast, Burn It All Down. And now I'm hosting the new season of American Prodigy, all about black girls in gymnastics. For the last 40 years, black gymnasts have moved from the margins to the core of the sport and changed gymnastics along the way. Now they tell their stories. You'll meet trailblazers like Diane Durham, superstars like Jordan Childs, and everyone in between. Listen to American Prodigies on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.